Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. What I want to do this evening was actually to uh, to look at uh, Micah chapter 5. So if you have a copy of God's Word close at hand, I invite you to turn with me to Micah. Micah, of course, is a minor prophet, minor in the sense of small in terms of volume of writing, but not in terms of importance. In fact, the minor prophets are some of the most um, wonderful uh, previews of the kingdom of God in all of the scriptures. And, and Christmas actually becomes a great time for us to look at this text uh, in some detail, both this evening and again tomorrow morning. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, Christmas is a kind of a high watermark, I think, in terms of the, the uh, church calendar. It's right, up there with, it's right up there with Resurrection Sunday as we remember Christ's birth. And, but it's, it's a high watermark for the world, I think, as well, in many ways. Um, even unbelievers, uh, Christmas evokes a sense of palpable anticipation, a type, a, 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 an excitement in all the celebration, whether that's setting up little ceramic figurines in their nativity sets or um, humming along to hymns uh, you know, that they stream on their uh, podcasting apps or whatever you listen to now, of angels proclaiming Messiah's birth and and wise men bringing gifts. Um, everyone, almost everyone, loves and, and looks forward to Christmas for a lot of different reasons. Believers and unbelievers alike, I think, know that. They incorporate some aspect or, or many aspects of the biblical details of the birth narrative into their Christmas celebrations, even if that is just out of a sense of joyful nostalgia. And I fear that for many of us, Christmas can become a little more, little more than that, joyful nostalgia. There's, and, and all the profound truths that we think about when we think about Christmas um, from Scripture, all those profound truths um, become little more than decorations or props in an otherwise somewhat sentimental celebration. We know the facts. We understand the details. We'll read about them again tomorrow morning. We may even have some general notion of their spiritual significance and their value um, but for the most part, if we're honest, we can fall into the trap of letting those things simply be spiritual window dressing. Even for those who have a firm grasp of these rich biblical truths from the Gospels, it can be hard to place them within the larger context of redemptive history. And so what I want to do this evening, and again in second part tomorrow morning, in the few minutes that we have together in God's Word, is I want to go back to the beginning I want us to go back to the beginning. I want to help you better understand one specific detail of Jesus' birth that we too often take and treat like a spiritual accessory in an otherwise uh, sentimental Christmas celebration. And my hope and my prayer that is, as we go through this and look at this one detail in Jesus' life within the larger context of redemptive history, that you'll be able to stand back this evening and tomorrow morning and say, there is no one like our God, and there is no one like his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to the place of Messiah's birth. And of course, we know it well, it is Bethlehem. There's a strong um, argument to be made, and I think it's a compelling argument, that the kingdom of God is one of the, if not the, unifying theme of Scripture. If you've ever looked at the Bible and thought, how do all of these random books fit together? How does this all, you know, all these different people and all these different periods of time, how do they fit together? You can summarize the entire storyline of the Bible into five parts. Creation, fall, promise, 
redemption, and the fifth being restoration. If you look at that, those five elements, you can incorporate all of Scripture under one of those five headings. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, and restoration. In other words, the kingdom created by God, perfect, becomes the kingdom fallen. We see that in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve sin and fall short of God's command. And then that leads to the kingdom, ultimately, at the end of the age, restoration, restored. And all of it, every, di- every aspect of that reality is anchored upon Jesus, the Messiah. And so every portion of Scripture, like pieces in a puzzle, fits in this picture of redemptive history, each contributing its own kind of unique part to God's revelation of his kingdom plan. Which brings us to our text uh, this evening in the book of Micah. Micah is a prophet in the 8th century, roughly 8th century B.C. And not only does he foretell about the coming exile that Israel was about to experience uh, as a kind of their covenant unfaithfulness, um, but he gives us, in these uh, verses, he gives us really one of the most important descriptions of the kingdom of God and its king in all of the minor prophets. As we said earlier, the, the compelling argument can be made that the kingdom of God is, is one of the unifying themes of all of Scripture, and all of it is centered and anchored on the king, on Jesus, the Messiah. So every detail of his life is important. Um, who his parents were is important. How he lived and died is important. How he rose from the grave is important. And that's why we are going to go back to the beginning. We want to zero in on where he was born, Bethlehem. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from the book of Micah, it's this, that there is no one like God and then he tolerates no counterfeits. That is really the theme of this book. There is no one like God, and he tolerates no counterfeits. In fact, he says it at the end in verse 17. He says, in verse 18, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? In fact, Micah's name means, Who is like God? And so he uses the prophet to deliver this message. And the first three chapters of this book are essentially a vote of no confidence in the present generation of Israel, both its leadership and its people. But it's not all doom and gloom as you read through it, and it's not all judgment and righteous justice. He says there is a day coming when there will be wholeness, there will be stability, there will be peace and blessing and everlasting righteousness. And that's what we all want. I mean, even in our heart of, even unbelievers in their heart of hearts want that. They want wholeness. They want stability. They long for blessing, right? We want rest from the futility of our labors. We want our body and soul to be whole and right and good. We want relief from the consequences of, of living in this fallen kingdom world. We want that. The question is, how do you get there? How do we get there? Because this world is full of counterfeits. It's full of disappointments. The story of Israel and the nations is one of failed state after failed state, failed leader after failed leader. So how do we get from the kingdom fallen to the kingdom restored? Well, Micah says and tells us 
that God will rescue you, must rescue you, and deliver you. In fact, he says it in chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, there the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. He says, yes, this is Israel. You are reaping what you have sown in your disobedience and your depravity. Yes, I am disciplining you for a season. And because of your unbelief and because of your rebellion, and yes, I'm even going to do that using other nations who themselves are disobedient and rebellious toward me. But he says, I will rescue my people and I will judge those who have judged you. And Micah says in chapter 5 and verse 1 that there will be one who strikes you. He says, uh, now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so Israel is going to operate this, these, this phrase at the beginning of verse 5, daughter of troops. And Israel will operate on a warlike footing within, in the midst of turmoil and threats on every side. This is the picture. He says, you're going to get knocked down to the mat a few more times, but God tolerates no competitors. He tolerates no counterfeits, and he will send you a new king. He will send you a new king, and this new king will not be like all the counterfeits. He won't be like all the imposters. He, he, he won't be like those who have fallen short and led the people astray. He says, I will give you a new king, a righteous king, and he will rescue you. And so he says what he says in verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He says, you want to know how it's all going to work out? Do you want to know how you get from judgment to resolution? How do you get from the kingdom fallen to the kingdom restored? He says it's all going to work out through one true king. He says it's all going to work out through that king, and I'm going to show you how he's worthy. And just as I've just, God says, just as I've displayed my glory to you in punishing the wicked and judging the unrighteous, in equally and magnificent ways, I will showcase my glory in establishing my son and in rescuing and redeeming you from sin's curse. Every detail about this king, all the way down to the place of his birth, is going to proclaim to the highest heaven, not only that there is no one like God, but there is no one like his son, Jesus Christ. This, this is what Christmas is meant to communicate to the world. We look at the Christmas account and we think about it in terms of us. We look at it in terms of our hope, our salvation, our peace, which those things are true and right and good, but Micah says it's so much bigger than that. It, and, and his unyielding, God's unyielding commitment to declaring that there is no one like himself, and specifically that there's no one like his son, is uppermost in the Christmas narrative. And so what I want to do this evening is look at the first of three reasons why from Micah 5.2, there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the first one this evening, and we'll pick up the other two tomorrow morning. God shows us three, in this, just in one little verse, he shows us three reasons why there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first, again, that we're going to look at this evening is that Christ is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. 
Christ is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. And of course, we see that in verse 2. And you say, well, where, where do you see that? I don't see that. Well, you have to ask the question, what's so special about Bethlehem? Why is Bethlehem the place where all this takes, takes a hold? When we think about Bethlehem and Christmas, we, really think, we rarely think about anything besides the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. That's what we often attribute with it. But Micah's prophetic word confirming that the righteous king will be born in Bethlehem is so much more significant than being the right answer to a Jeopardy question or something like that. It's so much more important than that. Micah's mention of Bethlehem here in verse 2 points his hearers and us to David's house, to David's dynasty. And, And you need to understand a little, just a little of the history of this dynasty to understand why this is such a profound detail in the life of Christ. See, from the outset, God, as the king of creation, purposed that humanity would rule over and subdue what he created, man being the kind of um, the crowning achievement of God's creation. We are those who are created in his image. We're not like the animals. And Adam and Eve had a task and a responsibility to steward what God had entrusted to them with righteousness and in obedience, and they failed and they fell. And hope seemed, would seem to be lost. In, because of their fall, Of course, sin enters creation, death, and judgment. And God ends that section in Genesis 3 with a promise that the seed of the woman, the the offspring of the woman, will eventually come and crush Satan, the serpent's head. And history unfolds. What becomes clear from the flow of Scripture is that God's kingdom plan is converging on one person, really, one line, and that is the house of David. And all along the way, God is making covenants. He's making very specific promises with teeth, if you will, agreements with select individuals and Israel as a nation, God's chosen people. And through those covenants, he is steering the course of human history. You can almost think of them as the stitching that runs through the pages of God's kingdom plan, these covenants. And God's covenant with David which we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and again in 2 Chronicles 17, is really the one covenant that brings resolution to all the other covenants. The promise that kind of stands over all the others, whether that's God's covenant with Adam and Eve, with Noah, his promises to Abraham or to the nation of Israel. God's covenant promise to David points to an eternal kingdom and an eternal king. In other words, it points to redemption and the restoration of all things. And so the Davidic dynasty, the house of David, is the key to fulfilling God's kingdom plan. We need to understand that. But even from the beginning with David, what do you see? There's sin. There's rebellion. There is failure after failure. Even David himself, a man after God's own heart, is beset with weakness and failure. And even the most faithful leaders in Israel and Judah are still just beset with glaring, glaring weaknesses. And the house of David just spirals downward from the, from the 10th century onward. And that's what the entire Old Testament history is all about. Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. That it's just showing you that no one is righteous. No one is the king, the one 
who can bring restoration, the restoration of all things. But God has promised that through David, he will do that. So God is going to bring the Davidic dynasty to nothing. In fact, he promises that in chapter 1. If you look back in Micah chapter 1 for just a second in verse 15, he says the glory of Israel will enter Adullam. You say, what does that mean? Where is Adullam? What's the significance of that? Well, that's a very important statement because Adullam is where David started running from Saul. Adullam represents failure and loss. It represents, um, it represents uh, uh, just defeat in the worst way, right? This one who was anointed by God is on the run. He has nothing. And God, what he's saying there is, God says, we're going back to the beginning, that's what he says through the prophet Micah. We're going back to the beginning. God says, I'm going to grind the house of David to dust. When I get done with it, the Davidic dynasty, with all their failed kings and all their counterfeit leaders, will be a smoldering pile of ash. They'll be like chaff that blows away in the wind for a season, for a season. But then he says this in verse 5, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, it will not always be this way because of you, Bethlehem. You need someone to reboot this kingdom plan. And if you want to reboot the kingdom plan, you have to go back to where it all began, in Bethlehem. And that's where David was born. You have to go back to where it all started. And so what Micah does here in verse 2, in this stark contrast, is take us back to the cradle of David's line, to Bethlehem and shows us that the son of David, this son of David will usher in the new beginning. This son of David will ultimately be the, the means by which God will restore his kingdom plan on earth. In other words, the last David must be like the first David so that he can resurrect it, revive it, and ultimately bring it to completion. That's the significance. In other words, this one that he mentions here in verse 2, this king, this Messiah, will be the pinnacle of God's salvation plan for human history. That's what this is pointing to. And who is this person, this man from Bethlehem, this last David, this righteous king? Of course, we know he's known none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so fast forward some 700 years later, and we see the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to David. Matthew, in his gospel, tells us of a virgin who is with child. He writes about Mary, a descendant of David, of the tribe of Judah, and she gives birth to this anointed one in, of all places, Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. And when Herod heard the news that the Magi were looking for this Son of David, this king of the Jews who came from heaven to earth, he asked them, he says, where will this child be born? And of course, they said to him, Matthew 2 and uh, verse 16, it says, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5, 2. See, Jesus was no ordinary man with no ordinary birth, he is God in human flesh, truly God, truly man, selfless, 
sinless Savior of the world. As we sing in our Christmas hymns, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. He lived, he died in the place of sinners, and he rose from the grave on the third day to redeem a people for himself, and having conquered that curse, will restore all things. Through Jesus and Jesus alone, God's kingdom plan for human history is accomplished. And Christmas, Christmas is the celebration of the light of the world coming from heaven to earth and triumphing over the kingdom of darkness. That's what Christmas is meant to signify to the world. See, our view of Jesus is far too small. It is far too narrow. For many, Jesus is nothing more than a moral teacher to help mankind get through life. For others, he's a personal savior that we tuck in our back pocket like a fire insurance policy to keep us out of hell. But what Micah declares here, and what is absolutely inescapable, is that Jesus, as the son of David, is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he, and he alone, is worthy, and we must worship him. We must honor him. There is no one like the Lord Jesus because he is the pinnacle of God's saving plan. Jesus resolves everything. And that's why his being God matters. It's why his death on the cross matters. It's why his resurrection from the grave matters. It's why every detail of his life, all the way down to where he's born, matters. And he was born in Bethlehem. And amidst all the chaos and the upheaval and disappointment of another year, who do we look to at Christmas? And every Christmas, we look to the Lord Jesus. We look to him. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. There's such irony in that. What we What we cling to, we lose. And what we give up, we gain. Just incredible. So what the message of the gospel is, is that we can find rest in him. We can clothe ourselves with his righteousness, not our own. We can bow the knee of our heart to him. Because only those who are united to this king by faith will share in the blessedness of his eternal kingdom. There is no one like God And there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. He is everything, and he must be everything to you and to me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you indeed were the fulfillment of the promises made in ages past. And we see that not in some generic way that that promise was given, but in a very specific way, with the very specific details, at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular a location in a particular line, that all those things came together. Every detail of your life is confirmed in the scriptures. The Old Testament prophets spoke truthfully. Those promises have been fulfilled. You didn't just come, Lord, but you lived a sinless life. You died for our sins, and you rose from the grave. And the scripture says you ever lived to make intercession for us, your enemies, Lord, we love you and we thank you that you would come from heaven to earth to redeem us, to set in motion your 
restoration of all things. And so this Christmas time, Lord, we look to you and we say there is indeed no one like the triune God. And specifically, there is no one like the Lord Jesus. We pray if there's any heart here or anywhere this evening that's hearing that message of good news, we pray that you would draw all men to yourself. The scripture says, if you are lifted up, that you will indeed draw whom you draw to yourself. We ask, Lord, that you would do that this evening. And may this Christmas not just be one of celebration of nostalgia, but of new life in Christ and hope for the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.